the most common model of burnout that I've seen used for the, it is a chronic long-term condition that involves three things. One is exhaustion. I mean, that's part of it. Every, there's a reason everybody talks about it because it's the most obvious one. But a second part of it is a sense of ineffectiveness that nothing I do has any effect. There's nothing I can do to change things. And then we kind of get into a third semi-related, either a sort of emotional disconnect or depersonalization from things or cynicism. In any case, it's emotional removal. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Are you feeling burned out as a parent? Has your relationship with your family become frayed? Is your home full of anxiety and stress? I have good news for you. Registration for the 2021 ADHD Essentials Summer Parent Coaching Groups is open, and the groups are built to help you with those very things. The groups will begin on Monday, July 12th, and run for eight weeks on Mondays and Wednesdays, meeting for one hour at either 1 p.m. or 5 p.m. Eastern, depending on the section you select. Each of the eight weeks has its own theme, and they weave together as we progress to form a really effective curriculum. Week one is self-care, because parents matter, and we should be taking care of ourselves so that we can more effectively tend to our kids. Week two is leadership. This week is intended to help you be less of a boss and more of a leader as you become more mindful of your role in the family. Week three is connection, both within the family and without. And week four is communication. The more effectively we communicate with our kids, the more likely they are to be able to do what we ask of them. Week five is systems and structures, something that I know we all need some help with, myself included sometimes. And week six is something else we all need help with, anxiety. In fact, These entire groups are aimed at helping us more effectively manage anxiety and stress at home. Week 6 just happens to be the week that we focus directly on that topic. In week 7, we address my wall of awful model and learn how to apply it to the challenges we face at home. And week 8 is questions. We're looking at how to ask more effective questions, how to use questions to build executive functioning skills, and also just questions in general. Our last week together, I open up the floor to anything and everything the group members might want to ask me about. The fee for the groups is $976. It's payable all at once or over four installments of $244. Go to ADHDessentials.com slash parentgroups for more details and to register for a free information call or email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. Registration closes in two weeks, so act now. And of course, check out our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, Hacking Your ADHD with Will Curb, ADHD Diversified with MJ, and the ADHD Friendly Lifestyle with Moira Maven. The next live Q&A of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network will take place on Tuesday, July 13th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Go to ADHDrewired.com events for more details. Finally, this episode, like so many others, was edited by Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. I greatly appreciate his work. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Raphael Bocamazzo. Dr. B, as he's known, is the clinical director at TakeThis.org, an organization working to decrease the stigma and increase support for mental health in the game enthusiast community and inside the game industry. In this episode, Dr. B talks about three characteristics of burnout, the difficulties of not being taught how to be neurodiverse in a neurotypical world, the six causes of burnout, and the importance of supporting our children's independence. All right, let's get rolling. 
This is interesting. I've never been on a podcast that was specifically targeted at people who have executive functioning challenges. Usually I am sort of the the odd person out and sort of the let's talk about my own executive functioning challenges being autistic, but no, that I'm in good company now. And that's, that's sort of a weird, but comforting feeling. Cool. So yeah. So go ahead and int- introduce yourself and uh, we'll go from there. Well, I am uh, Rafael Bocamazzo, just better known as Dr. B for long Italian name reasons. Uh, the, one of my first internships, the guys there just looked at my last name and went, no, no, <laughs> you're just Dr. B now. And it stuck because Lots of consonant and double consonants in my last name, and nobody wants to mess with that. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm better known as just Doctor B. I'm a doctor of clinical psychology. I am a uh, non-practicing doctor of clinical psychology. I do policy and education these days with a mental health nonprofit called TakeThis.org. Uh, we were the first mental health nonprofit to serve the gaming community, both the video game consumers and tabletop consumers, and the industry side as well. I do lots of trainings and consultations. And uh, our, our whole mission is to educate people on mental health matters within the, you know, within the game community. And so that is what I do with my time. I'm also an expert on the applied use of role-playing games and uh, like tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons and clinical and learning settings. And occasionally I teach clinicians how to do that. And all of my listeners right now are like, oh, it's another role-playing gaming episode. And they're wrong because <laughs> we're going to talk about burnout. <laughs> Um, but now you all know why I know Raphael. <laughs> you know, it's weird. I don't get to talk about role-playing games nearly as much as I used to these days, especially in the course of the last year with COVID and so many people in so many industries just shifting their lives to working from home In when so many people have never done that before. I've been working from home for five, six years. So, I, you know, it's relatively old hat for me, but there's a lot of people who haven't. And there's a lot of very serious concerns that have come up in the process of that. That's what I want to play with. My perspective on this is when you're a parent working from home and trying to navigate that. And you also have a kid that is trying to go to school and navigate that. And just for funsies, you've got some neurodiversity happening either with mom or dad or the kid or kids or all of the above. Yeah. Any, any combination, right? <laughs> that sounds like a recipe for burnout in my head. But I also, as we've spoken off air, I, I may or may not understand what exactly burnout is. So I want to start with that and then we'll play from there. A rant that I have been on just an absolute tear recently, probably for the last six months, is just how bad the mental health industry is at educating people on what certain terminology is. (laughs) The way things are used colloquially are not necessarily the way things are used in a technical sense. And we get that on this podcast because... Some people think ADHD is like, I can't focus, right? And ADHD is so much deeper than that. Right. Or, you know, another common thing I talk about, you know, through Take This when I speak with parents is the idea of video game addiction, which is a really controversial topic to begin with. And from a technical perspective, the evidence out there is that video games aren't really addictive in the truest sense of the word. But what they're usually speaking to me about is a repetitive pattern of engagement. And from a technical perspective, there are so many reasons somebody can be engaged in a sim- in the same behavior repetitively, whether it's, you know, obsessive compulsive behaviors, hyper-focused from ADHD or autism in my case, you know, PTSD, you know, head injuries. There, there's all sorts of reason, but from the outside, it looks the same. And so people use the term addiction to mean something than, different than researchers might. And so coming back to burnout, usually when I hear it used, people are talking about they're exhausted. They're just absolutely fried. They've had too much going on and they are exhausted. But burnout is so much more than that from the technical perspective. Burnout is when we get into things like the the, the way the World Health Organization classifies it, it's a exclusively in an occupational setting. So it's exclusively applied to the workplace. And the most common model of burnout that I've seen used for the, it is a chronic long-term condition that results from, from a workplace setting that involves three things. 
One is exhaustion. I mean, that's part of it. Every, there's a reason everybody talks about it because it's the most obvious one. But the, uh, the a second part of this is a sense of ineffectiveness that nothing I do has any effect. There's nothing I can do to change things. My work, you know, it's po- and then we kind of get into a third semi-related concept of, and I, I've heard this described differently in different papers, either a sort of emotional disconnect or depersonalization from things or cynicism. In any case, it's emotional removal. And so the three parts of burnout from a technical perspective are exhaustion, a sense of ineffectiveness and uh, cynicism, emotional removal. And that can be like anger at just snapping at things, anger at people, not giving a, a flying flip what any anybody has to say or whatever. And so when you when you get all three of those things combined in a workplace setting, that's when you especially over a long term period of time, that's when you're looking at actual burnout. And that's the reason those other two factors are the reason vacations just don't work long term because you're still coming back to the same system. Excluding the workplace part of that definition, my coaching groups treat burnout because I work with parents who are exhausted who feel like they're ineffective in parenting their kids and and nothing they do is going to matter and who are emotionally and like socially disconnected from their kids or disconnecting from their kids where they feel like I've had parents tell me that they don't like their kids, that they hear their kids coming down the hall and they get filled with anxiety or dread, or they will invite their kid to go do something. And when their kid says, no, I don't want to go out for ice cream or whatever, they get this wave of relief because they didn't really want to go anywhere with their kid, but they're their parent and they feel like they have to. So to me, it sounds like that at least echoes burnout if it's not, if I'm not nailing it. Yeah, it's, it's something that I've been, I've been meaning to look into a little bit more is the overlaps between like caregiver fatigue or compassion fatigue, which, you know, it's talked, compassion fatigue is talked about in, in caregiving industries, whether it's mental health, whether it's uh, behavioral health, whether it's the medical industry, whether it's teaching, whether it's whatever caregiving or compassion fatigue in any, in any industry where you have to care about other people. That's been something I've been hearing about since the beginning of grad school and caregiver fatigue in terms of long-term illnesses or, uh, in family settings, that's another thing. And I, I suspect there's significant overlap, but I haven't really done any deep dive into any research behind that. But I, I won't be shocked if I find something. For the context of this interview, I'm happy to use sort of burnout off label if burnout is exclusively in the workplace, which I, in my head is like marketing more than mental health kind of. Because in, in my head, that's like, well, burnout is happening in, in the workplace. So that's going to get employers to care about it and want to do something about it. Whereas if it's more broad based, then employers are often willing to say, oh, well, that's a home thing. Like I don't have to deal with that because it's not a job thing. So I'm comfortable taking it from being a job thing and sort of in the back of my mind, which I'm saying out loud, wondering if it's a job thing so that employers will actually do something about it and not just try to foist it off on the individual employee and bring it into the family. Well, I, I just suspect it has more to do with where the research has been that, you know, as all of the research I've looked at has been about job constraints, because, you know, whether whether people have kids or don't have kids, they probably have a job and they spend 40 hours of their week there. Ideally, video game industry is a whole different ballgame where people spend way more than they need to <laughs> and usually uncompensated. But it was originally defined as a workplace term and the research that I've seen has been in that arena as well. Like I said, I suspect there's significant overlaps between caregiver fatigue and the technical concept of burnout. I just haven't looked into it yet. So when it comes to burnout, sort of putting my, my jaded perspective to the side a little bit, cause it keeps getting more jaded. And I'm like, well, that's cause there's money to be made or money not to be made if someone's burned out. So I want to help them not be burned out. But if they're just fried in their kid, it doesn't affect my bottom line. But it does, though. I know it does, but I don't have to see it that way. It absolutely does. I mean, abs- uh, so absenteeism causes companies a lot of money every year. But something that companies don't necessarily take into account is something called presenteeism, where 
people physically show up, but they ain't mentally there and they're and they're not getting work done because they're trying to tough it out. Mm -hmm. And so the home life definitely has an effect on the workplace. I'm all about looking at systemic issues. That's so much of my job. I'm in some ways experiencing the inverse of that because I contextually for the last year of covid i've been in my house almost the whole time right like and i'm homeschooling my kids which means i'm doing doing the curriculum executing the curriculum the whole nine yards and i have this job where i'm interviewing people and i'm doing all that stuff i don't have a lot of areas where i can not be there mentally where i can be there physically but not mentally and especially in the adhd essentials part of it i have to be there at home, there's times when I'm with my kids and I'm like, you guys should be writing an essay, but I, you're not writing the essay and I don't have the ability to make you write the essay without it turning into a fight and an argument. And that's not going to help any of us. So I guess today we're going to do something that's not an essay, which might mean we pivot to watching a documentary or we just go play tennis or whatever. But there's plenty of times where the inverse of that, where I'm not there mentally at home. I mean, even my description is I'm a little there mentally, right? Because I'm like still figuring out how to make something happen. Uh, but I have to be there at my job. And I've pared down the ADHD hours pretty significantly during COVID. So that's part of why I can do it is I'm like, I have like three or four hours where I need to be on the ball each day. And the rest of those hours, I'm still working. It's just with my kids and no one's paying me. Um, so I, I hear you on, on that presenteeism. I've definitely experienced that over the course of the last year. If parents are listening to this, if teachers are listening to this, if employers are listening to this or any combination of all of the above, I want you to internalize the idea of giving yourself compassion and giving your employees compassion in the course of the last year. Because this is, this is, I'm about to say something to you. I have said to a, a bunch of different game studios and to their HR departments and their managers and almost invariably every time I say this, the game studio folks just kind of go, oh, huh. And that is that in the light of the last year where we have an entire, your, your entire workplace ecosystem has shifted to working from home in, in a remote fashion when you've never done that before. You didn't have the infrastructure for that. It requires an absolutely brand new skill set on the part of not only your employees, but your managers that they are learning while they're doing the job on top of which if they have kids or other family members, they're now at home with those kids or family members and they have to be simultaneously present as family members or caregivers as well as teachers when they've never been teachers before in all likelihood. On top of that, they are dealing with the very real stressors of an ongoing global generational trauma that we haven't seen this sort of mobilization effort since World War II. With all of that in mind, how have your productivity standards shifted? And usually the response is, oh, oh, they haven't. We haven't thought about that. And a lot of people haven't. And so you cannot expect yourself to be giving the same level of efficiency in all areas as before all this. The, the playing field is different. You can't have the same results. And, and that applies to schoolwork for what the kids are doing and what the teachers are giving the kids. Thousand percent. That applies to our parents who are doing whatever they're doing. That also applies to us as individuals, right? Like when COVID hit, I was kind of ahead of that. I was like, no, we're all going to like pretty much suck at everything and be okay at one or two things. Like you get to pick one or two things you're going to do okay at and everything else you're going to suck at. And that's just the <laughs> way this is going to work. Pretty much. Yeah. It's largely played out for me where I've been okay <laughs> at the ADHD stuff. I've been okay at either the parenting stuff or the homeschool stuff, depending on which one needed to be okay in that moment and then sucked at the other one as necessary you and always prioritizing my relationship with my kids and my wife over everything else as much as possible. The truth is there's so many hours in the day and our, you know, the American, the American employment system is based on very old standards that aren't really compatible with the COVID world. And that's where the burnout is coming from 
for a lot of us. Not that it didn't exist prior to COVID, but this lack of adjustment in terms of expectations relative to our new world reality is a major component for where the burnout is coming from for so many of us. What are some of the ways we can handle that? As individuals, that's a tricky question because in the strictest definition of things, burnout's a systemic issue. Examples I've seen or heard people talk about just in the, like the, let's say the game industry where I primarily work. If you've got a toxic environment in your company and you've got managers that are abusive and you've got hours that are ridiculously long, well past the point of any sense of efficiency, and you see that there's a problem going on, there's like a morale issue or a burnout issue with your employees, and you give them one hour a day mindfulness classes, that doesn't change the system. Or you ask your your employees to do individual interventions when the system is broken. And so on an individual level, that's a really hard question to ask. If we were to sort of extrapolate factors that contribute to burnout in the classical sense to out, you know, to situations outside of a workplace setting. Six factors that are really commonly talked about in terms of contributing to burnout. Uh, One are what workload. If your workload is too much, yeah, you're going to burn out. Thankfully, that's the easiest to fix, I think. Let me play with that for a second. I think the systemic piece is important. And I think we can translate that to the home, right? Because family systems is a thing. The family is a system. When it comes to workload, an easy way to shift that is to set more realistic expectations around what you and what your kid is trying are trying to do. In an ADHD home, that means something that's a little tricky for a lot of us, which is accepting that you have ADHD in your home. You can know you have ADHD in your home and not accept that you have ADHD in your home. <laughs> Because that acceptance piece is things like my kid never hangs their coat in the closet. They always put it on the back of the chair and it drives me crazy. Or you can just accept the fact that that coat is going to be on the back of their chair because if they put it in their closet, they're going to forget the coat exists and they're going to go out without a coat. And then you're going to be upset because their kid, your kid's outside without a coat. Like that might be a piece of it. Or I talk to folks who are like, I totally understand that I have ADHD. It's fine. I just don't know why I can't deal with my laundry so effectively. And I'm like, well, why don't you just not put it away? Why don't you just have two baskets, one of which is like the clothes are clean and now I'm just going to take my clothes out of the basket and get dressed from the basket. And as they get dirty, <laughs> I'll put them in the other basket and then I'll bring that one down and do laundry and the baskets will swap spots. You don't even need a bureau. Like you can just throw your bureau away and live out of a basket if you want to. That's allowed. That's neurodiverse and neurofriendly. Right. And that's a way to reduce the workload just by way of example here. If, am I on the right track with that? I mean, sir, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of do what works as long. I, you know, sure. Why not? Is it hurting anyone? Cool. You know, weird is different than hurtful. Yeah. But so many of us commit to not being weird, even at home where no one can see us. Yeah. Because we're afraid of some magical hurt. Even for those of us who are neurodiverse. We are not by default taught to be neurodiverse. We are taught neurotypical standards. Like, and this is, I mean, this is something I I could get into a whole thing with this, but like, you know, for me, like the idea of dating, I was not taught to date neurodiverse. I was taught to date neurotypical. So, you know, I have these standards that I hold myself to. And uh, throughout our lives, holding ourselves to these rigid rigid standards that we may or may not be able to uphold can in and of itself be problematic for us because why are we doing certain things? Does it really hurt us to do the basket solution, which I've done? I mean, yeah, I've got to, I've got to hang my shirt in the shower for like five minutes before I step into it. So it unwrinkles itself, but really, is that the worst thing in the world? Uh, another big soapbox of mine is the idea of normalcy. I, I, If I ever do a TED Talk, I'm going to call it normal exists. It's just not what you think it is because normal is just a statistical term. It's where we get into problems of conflating moral judgment with that good or bad. There are plenty of things in life that are abnormal, that are wonderful. <laughs> I, I got a doctorate. That ain't normal. I'm pretty proud of it. 
you, you know, you have a successful podcast. That's not normal either. That is abnormal, but it's wonderful. And so letting go of this idea of conflating normal with good and abnormal with bad is one, a huge thing to uncouple, but also a tremendously helpful thing because quirky ain't the same as dysfunctional. Let me pivot us back to the things that lead to burnout. So we have workload as the first one. What's next? Workload is one of them. The second thing is a sense of reward. It's important to remember that in the workplace, as these things are discussed, reward can be both extrinsic, so external, what your paycheck is, as well as the benefits that you get from your job, the physical benefits, uh, but also intrinsic. I do nonprofit work. I don't make nearly as much money in nonprofit in the nonprofit world as I would if I just did private practice or I did corporate consultations for myself. Why do I continue to do nonprofit work? Because I find the work itself rewarding. I find that getting to help people help themselves in the capacity that I do is much more rewarding to me on a personal level than getting more money. More money would be nice, not going to lie. I got loans. But I'm here for a reason because I find it internally rewarding. In the workplace setting, those are important things to consider in terms of burnout. And I could see us just as easily putting that in a home context. So is a lack of reward going to lead to burnout, whereas clear rewards are going to reduce the likelihood of burnouts? Is that how this is working? Absolutely. And you can see why this is why this is a truly systemic issue that needs to, you know, in the workplace setting needs to be tackled from the top down, because if you are an entry level employee, you can't just say, well, I need to increase my rewards. It just doesn't work that way. And so in a home setting, my first recommendation is therapy and support groups for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and even more basic than that. When your kid does something that you want them to do, say thank you. Oh, God, yes. Praise. Because the weird sort of neurotypical 50s parenting style and that power dynamic of like, I shouldn't have to say thank you to you because you're the child and I'm the adult. <sighs> like that exists. That's a real thing that happens in families. Yep. And it it's detrimental to the overall relationship between the parent and child. It's going to lead to burnout, maybe for the kid, maybe for the parent, because if you're not saying thank you to the kid, the kid might not be saying thank you to you. No one's communicating their gratitude for the stuff that's happening at home. And something that basic can lead to a lack of overall reward in the home. Well, who doesn't like to know they're doing a good job? That's just who doesn't like to feel appreciated. One of the things I, I've experienced being autistic in, and b- before, even before I knew I was autistic, there were certain things interpersonally that I struggled with. I, I remember uh, uh, in a long-term relationship I was involved in, the other person said to me verbatim, why should I praise you for things you should already know how to do? Well, that relationship didn't last for a reason. Yeah. I like to call that clapping for a single. I worked with, I've worked with a lot of dads. Usually it's a dad who's like, I don't think everyone should get a trophy. It's a sports ball thing. It's a sports ball thing. And so I call it clapping for a single because I agree. Yeah. Not everyone should get a trophy, right? Not everyone wins the world series in baseball, but when someone gets a hit, when someone gets on base, you still got a runner on base. Yeah. You still clap. Right. Right. We don't just sit there and go, no one gets any applause until you win the world series. Right. And so that's kind of my perspective on this is like, right. You still made a contribution. And the thing is, in terms of interpersonal dynamics, when I got into another relationship, that lack of feedback, that lack of feedback from that particular relationship had ripple effects down the line. It made me not want to be as present in that relationship which had a rolling effect on things. Like I didn't want to contribute as much. Well, they wanted me to contribute more. And I'm like, why? I don't, you know, it doesn't benefit. It doesn't benefit me either way. I put in this effort and get nothing out of it. Yeah, I'm basically doing it to avoid punishment that I don't want to do that. Kids don't want to do that either. And, you know, when it comes to the home. And so when I got into another relationship where I did get praised for doing things like voluntarily doing the dishes, 
it made me want to participate more. It helped both of us. Yeah. One that's con- that I'm connecting to is I was in a relationship where whenever I apologized, I didn't get any response to that. So I was like, well, why should I apologize for anything? Because you're not ever saying I don't even I don't need like an I forgive you. I just need like a, it's OK. Like, don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. Something just an acknowledgement. And that wasn't happening. And that undermined the relationship. It's these little bids that matter so much. Right. And for, especially for those of us who have who who do basically our brains are on a different operating system, which is it's a metaphor I like to use all the time for being autistic is I'm Linux in a Windows world. And if you expect me to me to operate like a Windows, we're both going to lose. I can certainly interface with the Windows world for a while, but it takes a lot of effort. If you can recognize that, that I am literally on a different operating system or I'm maybe even a cultural perspective, I'm coming from a different culture. I I know I speak your language pretty fluently, but I it's not my first language. Praising me for being able to interface with you is going to make me try all the harder and it's going to be even easier for me to do it because I know my efforts are recognized. And so that contributes to that internal sense of being rewarded. So what comes after reward? What's what's our next in the six? Control. In in a workplace setting, feeling like you actually, and I don't mean like in a micromanagey sense, I mean in a sense of autonomy, having an effect and having a measurable effect on your work and your, your environment. A lack of that is a definite contributing factor to burnout, which by the way, and I haven't said this yet, has a tremendous corollary overlap with major depressive disorder. Um, which kind of makes sense if you think about the certain models of depression. But yeah, a sense of control. And, you know, long-term research, we know this in parenting life that in home and family life, in terms of parenting styles, giving kids a certain degree of autonomy within limits, of course, giving them a healthy degree of autonomy so they can learn to essentially grow to be individual human beings is healthy. And parents who put their kids constantly on lockdown and micromanage and control every aspect of their being. And, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm putting that down because I've, you know, back in the days when I did work with families, I saw parents doing some of this stuff for the best, best, best reasons. They wanted to protect their kids. They wanted to help their kids succeed, but they also didn't let their kids fail. Yeah. I like to call it practicing independence. That's the phrase I use with my kids. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. It's got to let them practice independence. And that also helps develop resilience. Right. Yeah. And, and also a sense of intrinsic reward too, right? Like that informs number two and it informs number one, because if I'm allowing my kid to have some measure of control, autonomy, influence, whatever, over their world, over the family events or whatever, then when they get to use that control when they get to use that influence, they're getting potentially a measure of accomplishment of reward from that. And they're also effectively using their workload. Like it's not a situation where in that moment, I don't know in the big picture, but in that moment, if they pull it off, then they met the level of effort needed for that workload and they're not overwhelmed by it. And when we don't let our kids do stuff, the implication is that they can't handle it that this is too much workload for them. And so even if it isn't, they're going to assume that it is. And so their internal story that they're telling themselves is going to be that they can't handle stuff. So when they do have a workload, it's going to end up being overwhelming and lead to kid burnout or parent burnout. Yeah. So feel free to argue with me. The idea that people can be empowered through autonomy that is, I mean, there, there's, of course, of course, that can go all the way to the other side. And if, you know, you let your kids flail without a safety net. That doesn't work either. There's something in the middle here that we want to do. Right. There is that sweet spot in the middle where they learn appropriate, you know, I'm trying to do this without getting into technical terms. But yeah, you scaffold the difficulty of things for your kids skill levels, whether that's developmentally or, you know, cognitively or whatever, you meet them where they are and there is just the right level of challenge. And that's where you let them flail. And when they accomplish that, that's where they get that sense of autonomy and empowerment. And if you're letting them flail and they're consistently failing in that flailing, probably too high. Scale that back a little. Yeah. Bring it back. So what's number four? 
Number four, and this is where it gets a little bit trickier in applying this outside of a workplace setting, culture fit. Because if you are constantly ostracized from the people in your workplace environment, we know for a fact that across diagnoses, across situations, a sense of inclusion a sense of community, a sense of belongingness is one of the most powerful factors in emotional and psychological resilience. I got this in family easy. I see this all the time in my coaching groups. Well, and as, as you say that now, I'm just like, boom, I can think of a, a gajillion examples. Yeah, this is, this is unconditional positive regard and love for your kids. That's what this is, right? Because then they feel accepted in the family, then they feel connected. Even if they're autistic, they have autism, and they're speaking a language and coming from a culture that doesn't match the family language and culture because maybe they're the first one, right? And we're like, I don't understand what to do with my kid. I see this with ADHD kids where I've got two parents who are neurotypical and like, I don't know, the uncle or something is ADHD. And they're like, I don't understand what to do with my kid because he can't remember stuff and he's not organized and he just gets upset for no reason. And he like likes this weird stuff that I can't relate to just generationally. I don't understand why he will watch a person play Minecraft all day, but he won't do his homework. I'm in this photo and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, right? Like all of that stuff, that's culture fit. And that's okay. And it's it's okay for that to happen. It's not okay for the parents to not figure out how to navigate that. Like just watch what your kid digs and learn how to dig that stuff. Learn how to meet them where they are and then teach them some stuff that maybe you need them to know about so that they can join your culture, right? Like. If they're not into sports ball and you're huge football fans, you're going to have to like learn Minecraft and enjoy Minecraft well enough so that you can explain football to them in Minecraft terms so that they can then join you with football and be okay with they're never going to want to watch the whole game. Just like you're never really going to want to play Minecraft, but still love them and connect with them and, and do the stuff that you can to stay connected. Am I connecting this dot right i think it's a really good supposition okay i mean you're talking you're talking about stuff that it, let's let's just take the term burnout out of the equation i mean all of this stuff is established within within family literature this is you know the idea of feeling connected to your family is good for you uh, that feeling of disconnect it leads to so many other outcomes so many other outcomes. I mean, if you if you talk to people who struggle with major depressive disorder, how many of them feel disconnected from other people? Social anxiety. I mean, that's literally disconnected from other people for fear of judgment or, you know, embarrassment. You know, there's there's so many things this idea of a disconnect can contribute to way, way past the idea of burnout. Feeling connected is good for you. It is. And I can see how feeling disconnected from your kid can cause parents to feel burnout. Oh, sure. Right. Like, I don't understand my kid. I don't know how to relate to them. I don't know how to connect to them. And and something that I think is really important and critical to kind of call out right now is, ladies and gentlemen, your children during their formative years, whatever that is for them, have lived through a global trauma event unlike anything you ever experienced. And as a result their values are going to be different from yours. And even beyond, do they like football or Minecraft? And do you like football or Minecraft? They're just going to have a different value set than you have. And that by itself can potentially cause you to feel disconnected from your kid. And it might cause you to feel judgmental and thinking they're not doing it right and all these kinds of things. Just recognize when those values are different and try to do the math on whether or not the COVID pandemic is playing a role in that because it probably is. I'm, I'm laughing, not at this, but something that, well, is somewhat related. I think about my gener my micro generation. Cause I was born at, you know, I'm, I'm not a Gen Xer and you're a Zennial. I, yeah, I, you know, I am too. And I, and there's so many people in my family who have a different rule set about the world, the way the world should work. And they're like, well, just get a job. I'm like, I have a job. I have a 40 hour a week job. Well, what you then your next step is buy a house. I'm like, I live in Seattle. I have a six figure student debt because that's what the system set me up for. 
And they, they, you know, there's so many things that they, you know, their mindset, their idea about the way the world should work because of they grew up in their formative years in a time of incredible American affluence doesn't apply anymore. And yeah, conflict there. So many conflicts there. <laughs> and it's just important that we recognize it because the sooner we can see it, the more readily we'll be able to get along with our kids. Like my kids, my kids don't trust authority at all because they've been they had some stuff at school where authority figures weren't pulling off what they needed to pull off for them. And then they lived through a global pandemic that was as big of a problem as it was because the people in charge didn't do it right. They didn't get ahead of it like they should have. And so my kids are like, why should I listen to anybody almost? And I grew up like anybody who vaguely seemed like they had authority. I'm going to do whatever they tell me to do. Like, that's just where I was when I grew up because I watched a lot of G.I. Joe. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, sir. Yes, sir. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You and I had very different media experiences because I'm like, "Mm -hmm." yeah, it's just the way that I went. And so I have to kind of navigate my kids and be like, all right, cool. Like, I, I understand where you're coming from. And I should say I was down with people who had authority over me until they proved they weren't doing it right. And then they lost me forever. Right. Like that was the end. I assumed people knew what they were doing. And it took me a long time to find out that, to figure out that most people don't. And that was a big, hard moment for me. Probably a lot of moments. Um, but my kids don't are not that much with uh, if you're in charge, then you're in charge, except that I'm their dad and I generally am doing it right by them and know what is happening. So they have a little bit of faith that someone knows what's going on in terms of driving this boat. All of that stuff is culture fit. All of that plays into how we fit into our kids culture and how they fit into our culture. And especially that generational divide matters. So what's number five? Uh, Number five is values in a company. If an example, I like to, you know, I mentioned, I like doing working nonprofit because I just want to help people. All I ever wanted to do was help the world call it my golf divot, my golf course mentality that I just want to leave the course a little bit better than I found it. Replace your divots, try and leave the course a little prettier than you found it. That's, that's what I want to do in my career. I naturally evolved in this role into a fairly public facing position because I'm, I like speaking to people. It was either it was go into psychology or become an actor. And I chose the one that was in theory, more steady work. Uh, but then I went into nonprofits. So, you know, that, <laughs> that was silly, Oops. but um, I, I, I just, I naturally perform at things. And so in college, I was very good at fundraising for my college. It's a lot of sales-based skills. If you take me with that same set of skills and put me selling cars on commission, I might do okay with it. I might be successful at selling the cars, but given it is purely for the sake of commerce, it doesn't necessarily align with my values. I'm not to say that that's not a valuable position, but it doesn't align with my values. And I'm not going to last as long in that position because what the company's doing, what the purpose of my job is, conflicts with my values as a person. And that is a contributing factor to workplace burnout. And that's where as a parent, I need to get clear on what my values are. And potentially as a parental team and with our kids, find out what our kids' values are as a, and what our values as a family and make sure that we're recognizing where parenting exists in our value structure and our value system. And what are we leaning into and why? Like, what does that mean? Because I there's folks who are like, I value creativity, right? It's like, okay, cool. When's the last time you created something? And they're like, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I have in the last 10 years. It's like, well, how do you know that that's a value then? Maybe you want that to be a value, but if you're not spending time on it, it maybe isn't a value. Yeah. There's a difference between aspirational ideals and core values that you need to live to be healthy. Yeah. And so figuring out what our core values are and how being a parent helps us execute on them because it does, it definitely does. We just need to figure out which one applies to parenting or two or three of them. And then how, what elements of parenting address that value and how can we line those things up so that it's going the way we need it to go. So what's our last one? Equity. 
in a lot of workplace scenarios, and this can be in the form of interpersonal justice or can be in the form of systemic justice, where, you know, we have lots of documentation that women in marginalized, you know, and those of marginalized identities, whether it's LGBTQIA plus status, whether it's disability status, whether it's the color of their skin, whether it's uh, the, you know, religion, any number of these markers for marginalized status leaves people both interpersonally ostracized and also having a covert or in some cases overt different set of standards applied to them within a workplace setting. And that lack of justice, like let's say, I, I know so many white dudes who have failed upward they keep screwing up jobs, but they somehow keep getting better positions. And if you, as someone of a marginalized identity, and I've seen this just within, within my autistic friends, we have to work harder to achieve the same results as some of our neuro, you know, our neurotypical counterparts. If we see ourselves as punished for things that other people are getting rewarded for, or we're just not getting rewarded for doing the same thing as other people, then there's a systemic justice issue there. In families, this is where like the ADHD kid who is a holy terror, right? Doesn't put his dish in the sink. Mom comes down on him. The neurotypical kid who is not as challenging for mom doesn't put their dish in the sink and mom picks that dish up and puts it in the sink. Right. And... So, I mean, if, if we're drawing parallels, like, again, that's a pretty reasonable supposition there that those standards and differing standards to us as people, I mean, again, it, it just, let's take this out of the context of burnout. We know that hurts us if we see that for a variety of reasons, whether it's just in the family, whether it's in a school setting, I never got it, you know, being autistic, I, I'm very into following rules, I would imagine, <laughs> as, as many of us are whether they're our own rules or ex external rules. Um, I never got in trouble in school except once. Except once. And I was one of three people wearing a baseball cap. And I happened to be standing next to one of the other people wearing a baseball cap. And they were doing some stuff they shouldn't have been doing. I got blamed for it. Then suddenly the person, the, the authority figure who blamed me for it, took my defensiveness as a further sign of guilt. And they said, well, why are you getting so angry? Well, wouldn't you be getting angry if you were blamed for something you know you didn't do? Yeah. Wouldn't you be getting, wouldn't you be getting defensive as well? And that would, to them was a further sign of guilt. And so I got in trouble for something I never did. And I stayed angry about it. Now imagine that happens over and over and over again. And flipping it to the parent side and potential parent burnout too, right? Like one thing that doesn't get talked about enough is that Parenting is a skill set. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people just kind of think you become a parent and you know what to do and like everything should work the same and all that kind of stuff. But if you've got one parent that is just better at parenting than the other parent, and so the kids connect to that parent more readily than the second parent, the second parent might get upset. Like, how come? our kids don't like me as much or how come the kids don't want to spend time with me, but they do want to spend time with you and all these sorts of things. I see it all the time in my parent groups where there's one parent who's like struggling with, I don't understand why my husband or wife, everything goes so much more smoothly for them. And for me, it's always a, a train wreck and, and challenging and it's like pulling teeth. That matters here too. Cause that's going to, it's going to look like a justice issue when it's really a skill issue. And so too earlier with the put the dishes in the sink piece, that's a skill issue too, because you've got a kid working from behind because they have ADHD or autism or whatever's going on, and they're just not as able to execute as the neurotypical kid. But the, the justice issue in this case, much like in the workplace setting, is how the standards are applied, because there's a difference between equality and equity. Right. In a workplace setting, at least in the United States, you're expected to give reasonable accommodations to somebody who has any sort of disability status, regardless of whether that's a physical, neurological, or emotional disability. And so you put, you put certain scaffolds in place to help them be more successful. It's like buying somebody short a step stool. It's not saying they're bad for being short. It's just helping them reach the top shelf. Yeah, I, I, I'm 5'6". I know what that's like. 
Yeah. On the flip side, uh, for those of us on the other end of that bell curve, you hit your head a lot. And I can jump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm amazed. I, I haven't been concussed more in my life. I've come from a tall family. Okay. Six foot at nearly six foot three. I'm one of the short ones. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Grandma was six feet tall over the Internet. You look the same height as me. <laughs> no, it's it's. Yeah. So um, but yeah, the, in in a workplace setting, you're required to give accommodations, reasonable accommodations. Now, what's reasonable is different for every person and every in every job and so forth. But applying the standards differently in terms of repercussions that becomes an issue. And I like the example that you bring up in a family setting that if you are strict with one kid about putting their dishes away, well, if you don't apply, apply that across the board, how, how are the kids going to view that? And it happens the other way too, right? Where the kid with ADHD gets away with more stuff than the neurotypical kid because they need that forgiveness. But if that's not effectively communicated and that's not right clearly built into what everyone is assuming, it feels like a lack of equality when it actually is solid equity stuff. It's pretty good strategy. Yeah. And we know in a workplace setting, transparency on those issues is essential in that in, in managerial, in decision-making transparency is incredibly helpful and being obtuse about how these standards are applied can create a lot of mistrust and can contribute to employee burnout. So just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? A lot of the stuff we've talked about today, even if we're taking it outside of the scope of burnout, it's just good stuff. It's really just good stuff of paying attention to what you and the people in your family, what do they find intrinsically or extrinsically rewarding? How do you help them achieve that? How do you be equitable in your standards of behavior within the family while still supporting the differences contained within the individuals. Regardless of the term you're going to use in any realm of psychology, that's just good stuff to pay attention to. And that paying attention to that stuff to the best of your ability is going to help you and your family thrive. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.